We'll hear argument now in number 01-1491, Charles Demore versus Jung Jung Kim. General Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Based upon years of experience, study, hearings, and overwhelming persuasive evidence, Congress concluded that the prompt removal of aliens convicted of committing serious felonies was essential to the nation's ability to control its borders. Detention of these aliens during removal proceedings was considered vital by Congress to effectuate that policy, to prevent flight, to evade removal, and to prevent harm done by recidivist criminal aliens. This is a facial, substantive due process challenge which cannot succeed unless there are no sets of circumstances, no set of circumstances under which the congressional policy would be constitutional. As this Court has repeatedly said — General Olson, do do we have authority to uh, entertain this challenge? As you know, an amicus has raised uh, a uh, jurisdictional question, and I think did it maybe in the Court of Appeals stage as well, certainly did it uh, early on here. The problem is uh, Section 1126E, which says no court may set aside any action or decision by the Attorney General under this section regarding the detention or release of any alien or the grant, revocation, or denial of bond or parole. Now, is that provision, number one, inapplicable, or number two, unconstitutional? And if neither of those, why doesn't it mean that uh, we have no authority to uh, entertain this case? Justice Scalia, it's the government's position, as held by three courts of appeals, that that provision does not apply to a habeas corpus challenge to the constitutionality of the statute itself, that the language of that provision relates to challenges to an action by the Attorney General or administrative action and does not preclude no, a challenge. Doesn't doesn't say the challenge. No, it says no court may set aside any action by the Attorney General. And, and what is asked for here is that we set aside the Attorney General's action in detailing, in detaining this alien. But it's our submission, um, after careful examination, the government originally took that position that you've suggested uh, in court proceedings. It was rejected by three courts of appeals. We studied it further. The government studied it further and came to the conclusion that those decisions were correct and would not preclude, and we're not contending here today. And, and you're relying on what language to? Uh, well, in, we're relying on the language that it refers to. Uh, and a reasonable construction of the statute refers to actions, administrative actions, uh, by the Attorney General or immigration administrative action by administrative officials, and this Court's uh, construction of statutes against um, precluding constitutional challenges to Oh, but all of those other statutes had some wiggle room, I think, even St. Cyr. And there just is no wiggle room here. It doesn't refer to judicial review. It simply says no court may set aside any action by the Attorney General under this section. Well, even in the Quirin case, uh, where the the presidential order said that the people shall have no access to the courts at all, this court sat to uh, uh, hear whether that sort of a provision was constitutional or not. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. And while it would be uh, in the government's interest to preclude this challenge at all, we think a fair reading of the Court's decisions 
including the, 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 court, the decision that the Chief Justice mentioned, uh, would, to would be to construe that statute as not to preclude this action in this case. Of course, that would lead, your construction would lead to a, a victory on behalf of the government in this case, but we've carefully examined it, and we think that we're not ad advocating that position. Well, I appreciate you carefully examining it, but I'd still like to know what language in it leads your careful examination to conclude that it does not cover this case. I mean, if it's unconstitutional, well, we, that's we, another matter. And we maybe may we'll be, strike it down for that reason. We, but we may be wrong, Justice Scalia, but we're referring to and relying on the second sentence, which says, no court may set aside any action or decision by the Attorney General under this section. It does not state, and, and, and we think the Court would construe it as not precluding a challenge to the constitutionality of the, of the policy uh, made by the Congress itself. It doesn't refer to the issue. It doesn't refer to the basis on which the setting aside is done. It doesn't say may set aside, you know, on grounds other than Constitution. It doesn't even refer to the basis. It says no court may set aside any action by I understand, Justice Scalia, and the government did indeed um, make that assertion, take that position in early proceedings in this case. It was rejected by three courts of appeals. Uh, we came to a different conclusion after reexamining it. Um, and that's our position here today. As this Court has repeatedly stated, Congress has exceedingly broad latitude in dealing with aliens, immigration, and the nation's borders. Can I have a quick answer just to uh, — you said a facial challenge. I've been assuming that it's a challenge brought by a resident alien who himself has a plausible claim that the statute doesn't apply to him because he's saying to, uh, you know, uh, petty theft with a petty theft with a prior is not uh, — uh, doesn't fall within the category of crimes. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but shouldn't I consider the case of a person who has a, a, an arguable claim that he's outside the uh, system? Well, Justice uh, Breyer, the, the case has not been litigated on that basis from its very beginning. I refer the Court to page 9 of the Joint Appendix, which is — which at the bottom of that section articulates the requested relief by the — by the respondent in this case. Petitioner seeks a declaration that this provision is unconstitutional on its face. As he uses those the, words, I know. I just don't know how to consider it that way. I mean, a person who had no claim whatsoever, am I supposed to consider it on the basis of a person who has — well, he would get the removal order entered in 24 hours if he had no claim whatsoever. Is well, that who I'm supposed to consider? Well, it, or somebody it, like the plaintiff here? If this — not only is it in the petition for habeas corpus that the individual is challenging on its face, the district court considered it on that basis, and the Ninth Circuit considered it on that basis, and it's been litigated here um, all the way through by the by the respondent on that basis. If there was to be an as-applied challenge, there would be a great deal of other considerations. Uh, and and this — as this Court has said, um, the facial challenge can, must be rejected unless there are no set of circumstances under which the congressional policy would be upheld. General uh, there, Olson, didn't, no didn't the Ninth Circuit narrow — uh, the group somewhat, but I thought that in the district court, district court said the whole thing falls. I thought the Ninth Circuit said only as to lawfully uh, admitted, uh, what was it, lawful permanent residence. And so that was not taking the whole thing at its base, but only a part of the 
I, I had the same uh, question. It's at 6A of the uh, petition for the appendix, the Court of Appeals, in the paragraph at the bottom of the 6A, it says, we stop short of affirming the holding that it's facially unconstitutional. Right. Uh, we affirm the grant of habeas corpus on the ground that the statute is unconstitutional as applied to him in his status as a lawful permanent. Yes, and the Ninth, Circuit, the Ninth Circuit did say that both on page 6 and 6A and, and on page 30A. But what the, what the Ninth Circuit did was issue a broad, sweeping declaration of unconstitutionality of the statute with respect to a broad class of individuals, that is to say, all lawful permanent residents. That's the equivalent of a facial decision as to unconstitutionality as to a broad spectrum of the people covered. And, and so it's your position, in effect, that although the Ninth Circuit said it was an applied challenge, in fact, uh, the Ninth Circuit itself struck it facially. Yes, it Justice. Just narrowed the description of what it did. Is That's, that, right? that is correct, Justice O'Connor. But, but it struck it facially only with respect to the permanent resident alien. That's correct. Yeah. To but permanent that, that, resident aliens. That's correct. That's sort of half facially. <laughs> mostly facially. Uh, that's, that is what the Ninth Circuit did, and, and it's our position that this, is, this case must be considered under those circumstances as a facial challenge. Uh, as I was saying, the Court has repeatedly said that in connection with immigration and protecting the nation's borders, there is no power at which there is more deference to congressional judgment, no authority under the Constitution granted more to the political branches, particularly to Congress. Um, Congress regularly makes rules, this Court has said, applicable to aliens that would be unacceptable if applied to citizens. Is there a regulation or, or, or is there a policy with, uh, in the Department of Justice or the INS which says that there has to be a conviction before you uh, utilize this section? Or if the Attorney General just has information that a felony has been committed, is that sufficient to detain? Well, the statute — Here there was a conviction. Here there was a conviction, and that is specifically what is said in the statute itself. It's my understanding — Well, the statute itself talks about a conviction. Ab absolutely. And, and what happens in practice, Justice Kennedy, is that either the removal proceeding is brought, as Congress has suggested, if possible, during the period of incarceration of the individual um, or immediately upon release from incarceration. So we were talking to summarize — a, a, this, this provision under 1226C uh, applies only to the period of the removal proceeding itself, which was carefully distinguished by this Court in its Zavidas decision of two years ago. This is, un, compared to that Zavidas decision, not an unlimited, potentially permanent detention period, but as the Court suggested in a, in a, in a distinguishable situation a number of year, years ago in the Carlson case involving members of the Communist Party, a temporary limited detention for the purpose of keeping the individual in custody, an individual who's had a full panoply of due process, having been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt with full due process. Um, of but the General, it is true, is it not, that there are people in the class who might have been convicted even before the statute was passed. So you're not just re just continuing detention. You have to go out and find them and, and put them under detention. 
It's my understanding, Justice Stevens, that it applies to convictions after the statute was passed. I may be misunderstanding that, and if so, I'll try to correct that during during uh, rebuttal. But that to, to the vast again, that would also, to the extent that that might be true, and I might be mistaken, that would only um, uh, illustrate why this is a facial challenge. The statute itself should not be declared unconstitutional particularly in connection with individuals convicted afterwards. Um, but what about this particular individual? This was after the statute was passed, um, Mr. Chief Justice. General Olson, you've, you've put in statistics about the number of, of uh, aliens who don't show up for the hearings and the, the, the rather low percentage of those who are ultimately deported uh, from the class that don't show up and so on. On your view of the government's authority over uh, over aliens and the deference that the court owes, uh, would our, in your judgment, should our decision be the same regardless of those statistics if you had told us nothing uh, about the, the, the probabilities of catching people? Uh, should we, uh, on your view, or would we, on your view, be obligated to defer and simply say it's up to the government? Well, I think, Justice Souter, the answer to that is that the test that the Court has consistently applied in this area, is there, is there a rational basis, is the congressional objective rationally likely to advance a legitimate governmental purpose? Those statistics that we uh, set forth in our brief and which were before Congress, when Congress enacted this statute, provide the purpose for which Congress well, acted. Well, is that rational basis review the one we would employ in reviewing legislation passed by Congress concerning uh, immigration policy? Uh, and have we applied a more circumscribed review over the means of effectuating those policies? Are, are there separate questions? I mean, the power of Congress to pass the law and to say what it does versus the implementation of it. Well, under certain circumstances, the Court has used that language, right. that the, the means uh, to achieve the objective yes. will be looked at possibly separately. But it seems to me, and it seems obvious particularly in this case, that the means are wrapped up in the objective itself. What, what is clear, Congress is dealing with a very difficult problem of a certain category or groups of aliens that were committing serious crimes well, in this does, country. Is, does that category, do your statistics define that category uh, as the, 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 the legal permanent resident aliens or all aliens? I think it's the latter. Well, it is, y yes, Justice Souter, it's if, all. If, if, it is, if it is the latter, then I don't know that the statistics tell us anything one way or the other. Uh, uh, about the legitimacy of the ends, i.e., the the uh, uh, the automatic uh, detention, what, uh, with respect to the class that we've got under consideration here. What the statistics tell us is that there were large numbers of aliens committing serious crimes, and that those com those individuals committing those crimes were highly likely to be recidivists. 
and that they were — that class of individuals or those groups of individuals were cultivating a criminal class that was engaging in General, organized — General, those statistics go to the likelihood of entry of the order of deportation, not of the likelihood of flight, which this statute is directed at. Well — I understand the statistics. Correct me if I'm wrong. That as to the likelihood of showing up at the hearing itself, which this statute protects, 80 percent of the people do show up. Well — 80 percent — well, the, the statistics have to be looked at very carefully because that 20 percent — 20 percent of the — Eight out of ten of these criminals show up. Well, no. It's very in that, that Well, actually, the, it's, it's worse than that, Justice Scalia, because that figure of 20 percent who absconded were people that had been, during this period of time, been given individualized hearings. They were the ones that, after a hearing — um, the authorities thought were probably likely not to flee, and 20 percent of that group did. When you look at but they include all aliens and not just the the, the permanent resident aliens. Yes, Justice Souter, but there's no question that there were large numbers of lawful permanent resident aliens that were evading the deportation proceeding itself. Once the deportation, well, I presume there was some. Mr. But General Olson, I wish you wouldn't answer this question. It's very important to understand the, the government's position. We're focusing on the percentage who show up for the hearing, am I, and that's correct. That's what this statute is directed at. And am I not correct that 80 percent of the aliens in the class did show up for the hearing without being detained? No, the figure jumped to 40 percent for people who were never detained at all, Justice Stevens, and that's explained in the brief. The 20 percent to which you're referring are people to which an individualized hearing was was given. In 1992 alone, we're talking about 11,000 aliens, criminal aliens, who had absconded. And we're not talking just about showing up for the hearing, because if that alien isn't in custody, he won't sh- — and, and the figure jumps to 90 percent of people that will escape the deportation order the itself. Statute doesn't, the statute is not directed at the consequences after the deportation and uh, uh, order has been entered. Am I not right on that? I, I disagree, respectfully disagree in this sense, that if you have the alien in custody during the, the uh, uh, removal period itself, he will be in custody at the time the order is issued. If he's not, um, it's very difficult for the government. But if he's at the hearing, at the conclusion of the hearing, and say, lock this guy up. Well, that, that is not the way the process works, Justice Stevens. There is a potential appeal. Um, that the individual no, takes this statute is not directed at the time during potential appeal. It's directed at, the, as I understand it. Now you correct me if I'm wrong. No, as I understand the statute, it's directed at the time before the hearing starts. Yes, it is. And the government and the Congress. Why can't the immigration judge at the end of the hearing say, "A, you're going to be removed, and B, you you, you go in the clink until you you go away"? Well, but this. Let me answer it this way, that 20 to 40 percent, um, and the statistics are difficult in this area. There's such large numbers of individuals. We're talking about 15,000 criminal convicted of serious crimes per year that are, go through this process. If, if we're losing 20, even 20 percent of those individuals that are absconding from the process and not are available for deportation or removal, that is, a, that is what Congress regarded as a very serious general, problem. I so you that's... don't necessarily lose them. All you're being asked to do is to have an individualized hearing as to each member of that 20 percent. But that 20 percent, Justice Stevens, and it's explained in the brief, 
that 20 percent were the individuals for which there had been an individualized hearing given during that period of time when that process was taking place. If you don't have an individualized hearing, of course, the numbers go up higher. So why we're, can't you ha- deal with that problem with a standard that's tough? That's different from having the hearing. After all, we give bail pending appeal to criminals who have been convicted. We give bail to alien terrorists who are about to be deported. Why couldn't you have a tough standard, but nonetheless, like bail pending appeal, but nonetheless give the bail hearing to the person who's willing to come in and he'd have to show, you know, he's not going to run away, he's not a danger, and he has a good issue on the merits? One of the one of the problems that Congress had is that it had experimented with that process. It was not being successful. The individuals were absconding. I don't think there was a tough standard. Well, it, 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 appeared, it, it appeared to Congress and it appeared to the immigration authorities to be a reasonably tough standard. The problem with uh, criminal aliens is that they, once, once they enter this process, once they've been convicted, after due process of having committed a serious crime, and once they're in that process, which is virtually certain to lead to removal. I mean, this is — removal is automatic. But what I'm worried — I see that. And what I'm worried about on the other side of it, I'm, I can see also how you could limit it like to bail pending appeal, a tough standard. The other side of it is the alien who's there and who's the wrong person. Or, or, the, or the statute doesn't apply to him. Or there's a crime that they say he committed which he didn't. I Isn't mean, he able to that, challenge that, those points? Pardon I me? thought those points can be challenged. I that, thought he can get a that, hearing as to that, those points. That's correct, Justice. We're only talking about people as to whom it's acknowledged that they committed the crime. It's acknowledged that they're deportable. And the only reason they may not get deported is the Attorney General might exercise discretion to let them into the country. That's, that's precisely correct. It is correct. correct. So if, in fact, I have a good claim, I'm let out on bail while they're considering it? If, no. If you have — if you — I think it's on page tw- pages 26 and 27 of the government's brief — sets forth the, the regulations of the, inter- of the Immigration Naturalization Service that provide that you may have an immediate hearing if it is not you, if you are a citizen, if you contend that you didn't, weren't convicted of a if crime. If you have a claim, you're let out on bail while they consider the claim? It's my understanding that what happens is that there's an immediate or relatively prompt individualized hearing. I'm not positive of the answer to that question, but there is the hearing that the Ninth Circuit talked about, an individualized hearing, uh, which, which would have applied all the way across the board well, given in those cases under those regulations. Given that, General Olson, that we're only talking about people who have acknowledged, you know, who have no claim that they didn't commit the crime, who have no claim that they are not deportable, why do we have to rely upon whether 80 percent of them will f- flee or 90 percent or even, you know, or, or none of them will flee? Why is it uh, — d- does the government concede that it's unreasonable to say, look, somebody who has no right to be at large in this country, he's here illegally, has no right to be at large. And num- besides that, on top of that, he's already committed a crime in this country. He should leave the country, and we're going to hold him in custody until he leaves. If he wants to fight that uh, that departure, that's fine, but he will be in custody until he departs. 
What is, what is, what is wrong with well, we're n- I'm not quarreling with your characterization no, you're, of you're, what — You're fighting it on the, on the ground that somehow we have to prove no, no, a just large no. number of them will flee. No, it seems I'm to me that even if none of them would flee, if they have no right to be here, if they've committed a crime, why cannot — they cannot be held in, in custody until they leave? This — we may well be here uh, on another occasion defending a broader policy, but let me emphasize the facts that distinguish — what you're suggesting and what the court considered in the Zavidas case, an immense difference that exists between the circumstances here and the circumstances under those circumstances. Well, you get to, to Zavidas and the distinction. The, you, you make, I take it, no distinction between lawful permanent residents and people who are excludable. People who are lawful permanent residents have many rights in common with citizens. Indeed, this court once said that they were a suspect classification. But as far as this case is concerned, it seems to me that you're making no distinction at all. The statute makes no distinction. The Ninth Circuit, of course, did with respect to excludable aliens, said that with that category of aliens, the statute, even under the Ninth Circuit's reasoning, the statute was constitutional. What we, the statute doesn't make that distinction, but what it does do is it provides for a brief, limited detention, which is not unlimited and not potentially permanent, of aliens in an area of Congress's authority is at its zenith, convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. But it might be of a crime that they, one of the claims here is, that this is not a qualifying crime. I don't get into that box. Now, that may be wrong or right, but suppose on your reading or uh, under this statute, someone would not be able to get bail despite a good claim that they are counting a crime that doesn't qualify as one of these serious offenses? That's the question that I believe I addressed earlier that's referred to uh, the regulations, and I hope I'm correct, that pages 26 and 27 of the government's brief, that the, the regulations provide for someone claiming who is claiming that they are a citizen as opposed to an alien or claiming that the crime for which they've been convicted was not a covered crime may, may have an accelerated hearing, which is no, — which In other is, words, for the class that we're talking about, it's rather artificial — to talk about lawful resident aliens because they can get a hearing on whether their continuing residence is lawful. They, they, they are determined to be de- deportable. They are no longer lawful resident aliens. That, that is correct. Well, General Olson, aren't they lawful resident aliens until an order is entered that they be deported? What they are is what they are, they are lawful resident aliens until there's an order of deportation. All right. But so at the, they, at the point of the, we'll call it the preliminary hearing, the Joseph hearing, when they can bring these challenges, there is no order that they be deported, and they therefore have got to be considered, as I understand it, as lawful resident aliens. They are, however, they have con- they have been convicted after due process of a crime that Congress considers serious, and they're being held for a limited period of time. And they can get a hearing on whether they are lawful resident aliens. That's correct. And they, in effect, they can get a hearing on whether they are lawful resident aliens. That's correct, well, Justice Scalia. Mr. Chief Justice, if, uh, if I may reserve the remainder. Very well, General Olson. Uh, Mr. Benevitz, we'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether Congress authorized, and if so, whether the Due Process Clause permits, a statute that requires that lawful permanent residents like our client be imprisoned throughout the duration of removal proceedings. Ms. Rabinovitz, do you have a response to the jurisdiction problem? Um, I mean, it's possible that despite the government's failure to raise it, that we could do so. And why doesn't uh, Section 1226 tell the courts to keep hands off? Yes, Your Honor. We agree with um, the Solicitor General's explanation for why this Court did not I have to tell you, I don't understand it. I thought maybe you'd enlighten me better. (laughs) This, This statute contains no express language that repeals habeas jurisdiction. That's one answer that I could give you, Your Honor. And based on this Court's decision in St. Cyr and Calcano, absent that, that language, the habeas, there's still jurisdiction in habeas. How could that language not repeal habeas jurisdiction? No court may set aside any action by the Attorney General under this section. How can, how can that, I mean, what can you do in habeas corpus unless you're setting aside action by the Attorney General under this section? How can that possibly not set aside habeas corpus? But this Court has said — Now, maybe you want to argue it's unconstitutional, but, gee, to say that it doesn't do this is — I mean, it's it's incredible. The Court in St. Cyr, with which both Justice Scalia and I disagreed, said something very much like that, didn't it, that you had to be very specific if you were going to repeal habeas jurisdiction? Yes. Try Johnson v. Robson, too. The point is that this statute — uh, requires the government to detain individuals like our client who are lawful permanent residents, not because their detention is necessary to protect the public from danger or flight risk, but merely because they were convicted in the past for one of a broad range of crimes that the government believes may render them deportable. Can you, you say the government believes it? Congress believed it, did it not? Well, Your Honor, the question that remains to be determined in all these cases is whether an individual is, in fact, deportable. Congress did decide that certain kinds of crimes should render an individual deportable, and these individuals have been convicted of crimes. What but the fact, the fact that they've been convicted of a crime, Mr. Chief Justice, doesn't mean that it's a crime that renders them deportable under the statute. And I think that this addresses, in part, Justice Kennedy's question about have they been — is this just that they're suspected of committing crimes, or have they been convicted of well, crimes? In, in, in this case, your, your client was convicted, <coughs> was he not? Yes, Mr. Chief no. Justice. He was convicted, but there still is a question about whether his conviction actually renders him deportable. And what question is that? Does Congress in the statute set forth the crimes? No, Your Honor. Congress sets forth a, a broad category of crimes that can render somebody deportable. And one of those is, is a broad category con- that are labeled aggravated felonies. The question, though, and this is a question that has been very hotly litigated in the courts, is whether a conviction is an aggravated felony. And in this case, that question is especially relevant because in our client's case, the oh, conviction did, did that you, he was — But the Ninth Circuit didn't go off on that basis, did No, Your Honor, the Ninth Circuit — So are you going to defend the Ninth Circuit's basis here? We're defending the Ninth Circuit's ruling 
Your Honor. I'm, I'm just explaining that this issue about whether somebody is deportable is an open issue, and that's precisely what the — that's precisely what a deportation proceeding is to determine. I'm, I'm, Mr. Rabinowitz, I had, I had understood from uh, General Olson, and, and, and please, you know, if it's wrong, we, we, I, I want to know it, that, that, that uh, your client could get a hearing on that particular issue whether the crime he's being uh, — he has been convicted of mm-hmm. is one of the crimes that entails deportation. Is, is it not true that he can — that he gets a hearing on that? He gets a hearing — Individualized hearing. He gets a hearing, Your Honor, but it's a very limited hearing to the extent that that hearing does not determine that he has, in fact, been convicted of a crime that renders him detor- deportable. In other words, it's a hearing that says you were convicted of X or you weren't convicted of X. It's not a hearing that says that X renders you deportable. Is that the point? Yes, although, Your Honor, it does say that the government is not substantially unlikely to prevail on its charge, so it's that you are deportable. So, and essentially, so it, it, does, it says that there is reason, there's a possibility, it's not impossible that you will be found deportable, that, you ha- that it's not su- — the government is not substantially unlikely to prevail on the charge. I think it's important to recognize that there are many individuals who are subjected to mandatory detention under this statute who cannot satisfy that standard. In fact, that, that they've had that hearing, and the Court has held the government substantially — you know, we can't show that the government is substantially unlikely to prevail. Not, now, I am — I'm confused on this, and I appreciate it. I — I assume there is someone in prison. He's detained, like your client. There's a class of people. There are two subgroups. Group one is a group that has no non-frivolous argument that they shouldn't be deported. It's virtually conceded they should be deported. Their only arguments against it are frivolous. Group two are people who have a real non-frivolous argument, a real non-frivolous argument that they aren't, it's the wrong person, this crime doesn't fall within uh, the statutory definition, uh, I probably will get asylum, something like that. They have a real non-frivolous argument. Now, I thought that what we were talking about, at least in part, was that people in this group two were being held without bail. Now, am I right? Because I think what I heard the Solicitor General say is I'm wrong. We're only talking about people in Group 1. No, it was just, I think, what Justice Scalia was concerned about. That's just what I'm concerned about, and I'd appreciate some elaboration on it. No, Your Honor, you're absolutely right. We are talking about the second category of cases. But aren't there one and a half? Or is this Joseph hearing? It's not just that Either you have a hearing or you don't have a hearing. You have the hearing that Justice Souter was referring to, where your burden is enormous, because you will not succeed at that hearing if you show it's more likely than not that this crime is, doesn't qualify as serious. You'd have to show overwhelmingly that the government will win on that issue. And it, so, But there is something other than uh, this is Joseph hearing, which you say is not adequate, is it? Yes, Your Honor. It's exactly you're, you're, you're not asking just for individualized hearings on those items, are you? You're, you're not just asking for individualized hearings on whether you are the person 
that did the that, that was convicted and whether the the crime of conviction causes you to be deportable you want a hearing on whether if you are let go you will show up for for a later hearing and i don't see why why that is necessary so yes. long, so long as you get a hearing on those other substantive points it seems to me the government ought to be able to hold you an alien who has no right to be at large in this country until you leave let me try let me try to explain how the statute works and why we believe that it's a problem the the, the proceeding that you're asking for, a determination about whether, in fact, an individual is deportable, is precisely what a deportation hearing is for. And that kind of decision is not made um, it, the first time you come before an immigration judge. It's often a very protracted process. I mean, we have individuals who have, who have been in jail for 17 months pending an immigration judge hearing to determine that exact question, Justice Scalia, about whether they are, in fact, deportable, which is why we say that the relevant question is whether pending those proceedings, there's a regulatory purpose in detaining that individual. Well, then and the, we're not the, the government answers that there's a substantial number of people who don't show up for these hearings, and that's the purpose of holding them. So that certainly is a regulatory purpose. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, that is a regulatory purpose. But this Court looks to the regulatory purpose in an individual's case when you're talking about depriving somebody of a significant liberty interest, which is what's here. We don't allow people to be locked up based on averages. Well, but you look, look at the immigration cases. Look at Carlson against Landon. I mean, that, that certainly was a class, not an individual. No, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, I respectfully um, — I read Carlson differently. In Carlson, what this Court did is it upheld the Attorney General's discretionary decision that five individuals could be detained because there was — the decision to detain them was, with not, was, was not without reasonable foundation. It was a discretionary decision. It's wholly different from this case. What makes this statute so unique and so unprecedented is that the government is prohibited. There's no discretion here. The Attorney General is prohibited from releasing individuals like our client, a lawful permanent resident who has a legal right to be here, even well, when — legal right to be here, although he's been convicted of a crime which makes him deportable? No, Mr. Chief Justice. It's not clear that this conviction makes him deportable. Well, In it's fact, clear he's been convicted. He's been convicted of a crime, but it's not clear that this conviction renders him deportable. That's precisely what a deportation proceeding is for. In the first-degree burglary conviction, both it's not an aggravated felony. Not necessarily, Your Honor. That remains to be determined. But well, how could a first-degree burglary not be an aggravated felony? That's a good question. Mr. Well, it's Chief a very Justice. good question. But, but yes, but let me point out. I refer you to. The, the amicus brief for by citizens and, and immigrants for equal justice. It's one of these green briefs. And it's on page 12 of their brief. They refer to a case, the Solarzano Potlin case, where an individual was convicted of you know, entering an automobile with intent to commit theft. And the Board of Immigration Appeals said, or the, the excuse me, the immigration judge said exactly what, what you have said, which is that how could this crime not be an aggravated felony? It's a burglary, entering an automobile with intent to commit theft. One and a half years after our client 
after this person, excuse me, he wasn't our client, was detained, the Seventh Circuit disagreed. Despite what the Board of Immigration Appeals said, that how could this crime not be a burglary? Um, it's not just a question of being a burglary. First-degree burglary usually, usually means with, with uh, people present in the, on the premises. Mr. Chief Of course, Justice. the Seventh, Seventh Circuit might have been wrong. <laughs> That's a good point, Mr. <laughs> Uh, Your Honor, but the government did not petition for cert in that case. And, and the point that I want to make — Well, it sounds like you're, you're still seeking some kind of facial invalidation of the statute rather than as applied to your client. No, Your Honor. We're not — Because speaking. you're relying on uh, a conviction of someone else for a different kind of a crime. No. Are we talking about this person as an as-applied challenge, or do we have a facial challenge? Your Honor, this is definitely an as-applied challenge, and I refer you to page six. So we are talking about first-degree burglary. Yes, we are. Not but, entering right, a car right. with intent to commit theft. My point with raising that example was just to point out that the question of what constitutes an aggravated felony is very contested. And it, it, but not in this case. Not in this case. First-degree burglar. Oh, it, it, it certainly is. It remains a question about whether this is an aggravated felony, well, because you uh, need to look at uh, the just, precise — Justice Breyer's classification of people who have really serious claims and people who have frivolous claims, surely a claim that first-degree burglary is not deportable under the statute would converge on the frivolous. Mr. Chief Justice, I need to, to disagree with you. It's unclear. To decide whether this is, is an aggravated felony, the Court is going to need to look at the specific language of this statute. The, the specific crime that our client committed was he broke and entered into a tool shed, and he was convicted under California state law. This is a very complicated technical area of the law, and all that I can tell you is that if you refer to our brief um, at page 5, note 6, Oh, no, excuse me, that's not the place. Um, to our brief at our brief at page 30, note 27, we note numerous examples where the question of whether something is an aggravated felony has been contested and decided. You, you, you consider whether he broke into an inhabited tool shed, I guess, uh, uh, to be not within the statute, and the other side right. thinks it is. Right. In your opinion, would, would, and this goes back to my initial question, which I still haven't heard you really answer. Uh, look, uh, on appeal, uh, somebody who has been convicted of a crime, in order to get out on, a, on appeal, uh, on, have bail on appeal, he has to show not only he wouldn't run away, not only he isn't a danger, but also that he raises a substantial question. Now, suppose that we were to say, uh, at least those people who show that they raise a substantial question, a substantial question, and it says not for purposes of delay, that as to those people you have to have an individualized hearing. In this case, if we're talking about somebody who raises a non-frivolous challenge like our client, that would satisfy this case. Because this is — I'm not saying it would satisfy the case, though no. I take it from what you say it would satisfy you and your position. Your Honor, I misspoke. What I meant is that in this case, this is an as-applied challenge. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge about whether this statute 
as applied to our client who's a lawful permanent resident who has bona fide challenges that he is not deportable and has, is eligible for relief from deportation, that in this case applying the statute to him is unconstitutional. So to keep someone in prison without bail after they've been convicted of something pending a deportation order is not constitutional without an individualized hearing, at least if, or don't say at least, if, among other things, he shows there is a substantial question not for purposes of delay. Imagine an opinion that said that. Would you argue for or against that opinion? I would argue for that opinion in this case because it would resolve this case. I believe that there also might be, there would be a constitutional issue that even somebody else due process requires that they have an opportunity to show that they're not a danger and a flight risk because that is the purpose of regulatory detention. And it's the I, I note that you have redefined substantial question as non-frivolous. Anything that's not sanctionable raises a substantial question for purposes of, of, of this new rule? Yes, Your Honor, and it, it has to be that way because there are so many examples of circuit courts finding that the Board's decision about what constitutes a deportable offense is wrong, and yet that those were cases where the individual could — where their, their claim might have been considered bordering on the frivolous, even though it wasn't. And let me give you a, a very — let me give true, you an example. All, all of — at least for people who have committed their crimes after this statute was enacted, it seems to me that they are on notice. If you get convicted of a felony, your, your uh, uh, welcome in this country is at an end, if it's an aggravated felony, and you will be held until it is it is finally determined whether that is indeed an aggravated felony or not. I don't know that that's terribly unfair. But your question presupposes the answer. You're saying — No, it doesn't. It, it's just one of the risks you take when you commit a felony. You're, it's, it's part of, of the condition of your admittance to this country. Uh, once this statute is passed, any lawful resident alien knows that if he commits a felony, and it's an aggravated felony, he will be deported. And, and until the question of whether it is an aggravated felony, assuming it's at least arguable, is decided, he will be held in custody and not permitted to be at large in this country. Now, that doesn't strike me as terribly unreasonable. Just don't do the felony. Well, two points, Your Honor. First, in this case, the conviction that is now being considered as possibly an aggravated felony was committed before the statute took effect. So even under Your Honor's proposal, the statute could not apply to him. In terms of what you're suggesting, though, if Congress was to say that anybody who could there still is an issue of whether somebody is, in fact, deportable. And to condition and, — and this Court has recognized that individuals who are facing deportation, particularly lawful permanent residents, have a right to a fair hearing. To say that those individuals must give up their right to physical liberty — Well, but there's no question that these people are going to get a fair hearing eventually. The question you're challenging is whether they should be — be incarcerated pending that hearing. So we're not talking about a fair hearing. 
You're right, Your Honor, Mr. Chief Justice. But the, the point is that if somebody is locked up for a year and a half and they can't get the evidence for their case because being locked up in jails also makes it much harder for people to present their cases. There's no right to appointed counsel. It means they can't work. There are — and this is, again, where I would like to refer you, just in general, to the amicus brief by the Citizens and Immigrants for Equal Justice, which points out other cases where individuals gave up their claims because otherwise they were going to be in detention for so long. And oh, let you, me just you, point you, out one you, other — you, You've got someone who is an alien here. The alien has committed a felony. I mean, it's difficult for me to say that they should have all these additional benefits so that somehow they can avoid deportation. Well, well first of all, Mr. Chief Justice, this — it's not only for people who are convicted of felonies. Even the definition well, — But that's what the case we're dealing of here. Okay. But the, the question is, what, what constitutes an aggravated felony? Misdemeanors constitute an aggravated felony as well. You're right. In this case, the what, what initial you, conviction — What do you mean misdemeanors constitute an aggravated felony? I know it's somewhat shocking, Mr. Chief Justice, but in fact, the way that aggravated felony has been defined so broadly, well, the courts have held that even misdemeanors can be aggravated felonies. But there's felonies. no question that first-degree burglary is not a misdemeanor. So in our case, that's not — we don't have to worry about that, do we? But let me return to the point about whether it's — whether due process is satisfied by requiring that somebody be mandatorily detained throughout the process of their deportation proceeding, a process which, as I said, can be months, often years, without any individualized determination of danger and flight risk. And the example that I wanted to give ties back with this Court's decision in St. Cyr, which said that 212C relief was available to individuals whose convictions — who had pled guilty prior to, to the statute having taken effect. All of those individuals were subject to mandatory detention under the statute. Their claim would have been considered close to frivolous until the Supreme Court ruled differently. Well, that's — that's exactly — I mean, your argument to me rings true uh, for people who have real claims. But if you're trying to apply it to a person who has an insubstantial claim or a claim that is interposed for purposes of delay, I'm tempted to say, well, there's a very good reason to keep him locked up, uh, namely, uh, uh, he doesn't have any argument and he's about to be deported, and, and if he wants to be deported quickly, he can be. Your Honor, that's — But if he has a substantial claim, it's different. Your Honor, I think it's important to recognize that that's precisely the kind of factors that the Immigration Service and the immigration judge looks at when they make a determination whether somebody should be released on bond. They, when they're determining flight risk, that's precisely what they look at. They say, oh, this is a frivolous — this is a frivolous claim. We're not going to release this person on bond because they're not going to show up. And we're not saying that individuals in that situation should be released from detention. All that we're saying is that an individual needs to be given some opportunity to demonstrate, look, I was convicted of this crime, but I have claims for relief. I'm not a flight risk. I'm not a danger. And I think it's important to look at — Would you agree that the uh, alien has the burden of showing that? Your Honor, we have no — In your your regime, would would there be any problem putting the burden on the alien to show that? We have no problem with Congress creating a presumption that individuals who are charged with these kind, with being deportable for these kinds of crimes are a danger and are a flight risk, and that they need to come forward to show that they're not. And in fact — Well, but I, 
I'll get that to that in a minute. But in, insofar as the substantiality uh, or, or the likelihood of prevailing, uh, forget about flight risk for a moment. So far as the likelihood of pervading the substantiality of the, of the issue, that's almost what the statute already provides for in a bail determination hearing. It's set forth on page 26 of the government's brief. A person in INS custody is, is entitled um, to a bond determination hearing. And the, the standard is whether or not the government is — he has to show the government is substantially unlikely to prevail. That's very clo- — forget flight risk for a moment. Uh, that is very close to the uh, regime that you propose. Uh, so I don't see what we're arguing about here as to that. Now, if you want to say that uh, you're entitled to release if you're not a flight risk, that's something quite different. And, and, I, would, and I would doubt the latter. But. Let me try to clarify what I believe is some confusion about what that hearing does. The hearing essentially just shows you need to show — that the government has no frivolous ch- claim. That's essentially what you need to show. I mean, you have to show that the, government ha- that the government's charge is frivolous. And I would assume that the government is not putting people into proceedings if they have no possible argument. But to require that an individual be locked up throughout the whole deportation process just because they cannot show that the government has a, has a frivolous claim that doesn't satisfy due process. In terms of burden, Your Honor, what I was referring to, what I thought that you were referring to, is whether an individual is going to have an obligation to show that they're not a danger or flight risk, or well, even — Perhaps that's why I asked you that question first. It, it, it does seem to me that if you concede that he has the burden, that that is really very, very close to what this, uh, the statute already provides, forgetting about flight risk for the moment, or, or — Yes, Your Honor. I don't, I don't see it that way. I see that the question about if you need — if an individual has to prove that the government's argument is frivolous, that's not the same thing as showing that you have a non-frivolous claim. And that's all that we're saying. I, I think that they're completely different. One is showing that the government's argument is frivolous. I don't — most of these cases where individuals were found not deportable, it wasn't that the government's claim was frivolous. But those individuals prevailed in their proceedings, and that's the issue here. Um, whether, whether an individual can be detained for a substantial period of time without any opportunity to show that, that there's no purpose that's served by their detention. And I think that, that this case is a perfect example, because in this case, once the district court, our client was detained for six months without any individualized determination, the district court then said due process requires an individualized determination. And the INS, the Immigration Service, on its own decided he poses no danger and he can be released on $5,000 bond. And he's been out for the past three and a half years. He's now getting his college degree. He's working. If the government prevails in this appeal, it will have no choice but to reincarcerate him throughout his proceedings. It's not a question of discretion like Carlson where they can make that determination. And going back to your question about burden, I think it's important to, regu- to recognize that the regime that was in place prior to this statute and that is now in place in those circuits where they've said that the statute needs to be interpreted to requ- or that the statute re- as due process requires an individualized determination still requires that an individual 
show that they are not a danger of flight risk. They bear that burden. And so under this system, no individual who's a danger of flight risk is going to be released, except for those cases where there's, you know, obviously going to be error. But in general, individuals who are a danger of flight risk aren't going to be released. I think there's one last point that I would like to make, because I realize my time is short, which is that this case poses a serious constitutional problem. And we believe that there is a way that this Court can avoid that problem by construing the statute to not apply to individuals like our client who are, in fact, not deportable. The statute says that individuals shall be mandatorily detained. An individual who is deportable on one of these grounds is subject to mandatory detention. As we've been talking about here, in fact, the question of whether he is deportable remains very much to be decided. He doesn't have any order of deportation. Mr. Benavis, why wasn't Judge Fletcher absolutely right in rejecting that claim? Because the language is when the alien is released from criminal custody. Because the, the statute directs custody when the alien is released from criminal custody and not at some later time, not at the time of the issuance of a removal order. Because I think that what um, Judge Fletcher was not aware of is that the whole regime right now that, that the Immigration Service has is to conduct deportation proceedings while individuals are still serving their criminal sentence, which makes complete sense because then you do not have this problem. People are already ordered deported, determined deportable, while they are still in jail. But and so still, the, if the statute says when released from criminal custody, even before release, but it doesn't say at the later time of the final removal order, there's two different issues, Justice Ginsburg. One is, when re- is deportable, it says, when released. Our point is only that there are individuals who have deportation proceedings while they're in prison, and there will be an immigration judge decision or a BIA decision that says they are deportable. Now, they may still be seeking review of that decision in the federal courts, in which case that decision is not final, and they would not fit under the next statute, the statute that you, that this Court construed in, in Zadvitis, which was 1241. But they would, or excuse me, 1231, um, but they would still have an order of deportation. And then that would be a way to say that individual is deportable. Whereas here you have a situation where anybody who the government charges with being deportable, in this case our client, even though he may not actually be deportable, is subject to mandatory detention for possibly a year, two years, however long, um, Thank you, Mr. Benowitz. Mr. Olson, General Olson, you have four minutes remaining. General Olson, I won't intrude upon your rebuttal time, but I have one question that's very important for me, and you can answer it yes or no. Assuming I disagree with you as to the reading of the statute, as to whether uh, there is jurisdiction in this case, uh, if there is no jurisdiction, is that provision of the statute in the view of the government unconstitutional? No. Now, we haven't briefed and studied that, and, and I have to rely on the answer that I gave before, but I think that that would be a correct — it would be within the power of Congress to do that under certain circumstances. Well, you can rely on the presumption of constitutionality if you haven't briefed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I would have, have to answer the question differently. Um, well, I guess — no, I guess I would that, — that's a good answer. Let me — let me <laughs> — let me just deal with a few things that were raised during uh, 
my colleague's argument. First of all, the date of the offense that's involved in this case was after the enactment of this statute. On page 8 of the respondent's brief, it is asserted that he was convicted of petty theft with priors and sentenced to three years' imprisonment in 1997. Um, that was when that conviction took place. Secondly, and I think a lot of time has been expended with respect to the question that focused in large part by Justice Breyer. What happens if it's not the individual? What happens if he's really a citizen? What happens if he wants to challenge whether this crime <clears throat> was one that should be covered? As we said on page 26, and we cite the relevant provision of the INS regulations, those types of things can be challenged in an individualized bond hearing, um, at which the individual, which is what the Ninth Circuit was talking about and which is what our opponents are talking about here, um, and that th- those issues may be raised at that point, which is precisely what the respondents are talking about. So that's already built into the statute. Now, one might quarrel with whether what the burden of proof is and where it should be and how it should be written, but that's a, this is a determination by the executive branch with respect to this statute. Um, if the alien can show that the INS is substantially unlikely to prevail on its underlying charge of removability, um, then the individual may be released on bond. If the decision goes against the individual, that can be taken to the Board of Immigration Appeals. So there's a process that takes care of precisely those, that category two, uh, as you put it. Now, that does not deal with the question of dangerousness or risk of flight. But that's what Congress was concerned about when it, it, when it enacted the statute. Congress was concerned about a situation in which large numbers of individuals who commit serious crimes, and Congress went to the effort of defining what it thought, defining what it thought was serious crimes. Now, if there is some question about that in an individual case, or if there's some question about an aberrational lengthy detention, that should be brought to this court or the courts below in an in as-applied challenge. The respondent is saying here today that this is an as-applied challenge, but that has never been the way this case has been litigated. From the petition, which I cited as a facial challenge through the district court's decision, to the, to the, um, as a, the, the facial challenge in part of the decision of the Ninth Circuit, this has been a challenge to the congressional determination that people who commit serious crimes are to, to be deportable as rapidly as possible, uh, they, and, and to the, in order for that policy to be effectuated, to, for our borders to be protected, to avoid the culturation of a, a criminal alien class in the United States that's operating freely for a limited period of time, that individual will be detained um, during that process until the final order of deportation is entered. Eighty-five percent of the aliens that are brought into these procedures don't even challenge the immigration decision, immigration judge decision, and more than half of those cases are resolved within 30 days. These Thank you, General. Are in the brief. Thank the you. The case is submitted.